Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga of College Coach. Today's show is going to be great. It's full of nuts and bolts advice for high school seniors applying to college, as well as some good advice for parents paying that that first tuition bill. Specifically, in my first segment, um, or sorry, in my second segment, my colleague Tova Tolman, formerly of a wonderful range of colleges, including Fordham, Barnard, and Montclair State, all in the uh, greater New York City area. And I will be talking about whether and which students should be using early deadlines to apply for college. In the third segment, Lisa Albro, another college coach veteran who, like me, not only worked in college admission offices, but also worked in college counseling offices. Um, She and I will be talking over whether a school you think is a safety, that is to say a college that you think is a safety, really is a safety. But first, I'll be talking with Chrissy Middendorp, um, college coach finance expert, about understanding the college bill. So welcome, Chrissy. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, All right. So this, yeah, so this is all about understanding um, the college bill. And I think people, people sort of assume, you know, they know how to pay their cable bill. The college bill is going to be really easy, but um, this is even bigger than your cable bill. So, um, and I think the bills can be confusing. (laughs) So I think, I think it's really good. Um, really good that we're doing this segment. But let's begin at the beginning. When is tuition due? Right. So tuition, typically at most universities and colleges, tuition is due um, on or before the first day of each uh, semester or quarter, depending on what your child is is having. Um, so most colleges do give you, you know, some sort of a grace period, maybe for a week or two weeks after the, the course has, or the quarter has started. Um, before they charge late fees. So they do give you a little bit of a break in there if you, for some reason, can't get the um, tuition paid, you know, on that first day. But it is a good idea to contact uh, student financial services and give them a heads up um, because sometimes they would be willing to waive a late fee too if you've um, been, if you're dealing with the issue up front with them. So if you think that there may be a chance that you're late with tuition payments or you can't get it on that first day or within those first couple of weeks, make sure you let them know. if you are using any kind of financial aid, um, that, again, is typically always set up to be paid by the first day of class. So colleges typically will get any loans, grants, uh, scholarships, things like that that are considered financial aid, um, usually a few days before the term starts so that they have plenty of time to get that into the student's account um, by that first day. So, um, again, most colleges will charge late fees after so many days. So just make sure you're checking with the student accounts or the financial services at, at your child's school just to find out what the deadlines are for that and what the fees might be um, if you do end up missing that deadline. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, I know that one of the items that always ends up on the bill is the health insurance fee. Can people opt mm-hmm. out of that? I mean, a lot of people are on their parents' insurance. Yeah, so the, the health insurance See, that usually comes as a surprise to some parents just because, you know, they don't know. Most colleges um, and larger schools will charge a health insurance fee, and they don't usually discuss it with parents. They don't usually talk about it. It just kind of shows up on the bill. 
And so if you're not, you know, looking closely at your bill, you could be paying for something that you may not need. Um, as you know, students are required to have health insurance, whether it's through the school or, you know, on their parents' plan. Um, and like I said, many parents, I'm sorry, many, many campuses automatically enroll students in these plans and they'll just put the, the fee on the tuition bill. So it's kind of a, a default assumption that every student would like that health insurance. So you do, you can opt out. Um, one of the things that you do need to do is to show proof that the student does have coverage equal to what the school is offering. Um, so if that's coverage through the parents, um, then they just need to provide that, that coverage, that proof of coverage. Um, and typically with, again, with most colleges, you do need to opt out. Um, or apply for a waiver or of some sort, so from the school's plan. Um, so you'll want to contact, if you do see that health insurance uh, fee on the, the bill, you'll want to contact the student's uh, student financial services. Um, find out what the, the, find out too what the student insurance plan covers, um, and you can visit the school's website for that. Um, and then also before you do opt out, you know, make sure that um, your own health insurance or that parents' own health insurance will cover the child if they go to a different city or region for school. Um, sometimes that, that may not apply, so, you know, you may want to get the health insurance. But, yeah, absolutely, you can opt out. Um, you just need to show proof that they do have insurance elsewhere. And you do, that is something you have to do each year, so you don't just do it for the first year enrollment. You have to do it every time they, you get the college bill per mm-hmm. year. Okay. All right. Good to know. Every year, just like applying for financial aid has to happen every year. (laughs) Exactly. Every year you got to do it. Mm -hmm. All right. So will the bill show a student's financial aid? Well, typically the bill will show any financial aid that's pending. So a lot of times parents will get the the bill for their, um, for that semester before financial aid has paid to the account, just to give them time to, you know, figure out how they're going to pay it. So any, uh, like I said, any loans or grants or scholarships, if financial aid knows about those and they've been set up with the financial aid office, those will show up on the bill that they'll show as pending um, because, like I said, financial aid typically can't be paid any earlier than about 10 days before the first day of classes, and some uh, schools will do it even later than that. They may do it, you know, three days or five days before. So if you do get the bill earlier than that, it, it would show up, but it'll show as pending since it hasn't paid yet. So what they'll typically do is take the total amount that you owe and deduct any of that pending aid from the bill, um, and then that way you can, still, you can see what is outstanding at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What is the difference between pending aid and actual aid? Um, so if you've been awarded any type of financial assistance, you know, again, and that can be in the form of loans, um, grants, scholarships, um, any of that type of stuff, if you've, or if you've applied for any loans that have been processed, again, the pending aid just simply refers to the, the aid that the school is expecting you to receive. Um, as of the date of your bill. So once they, they run that college bill and they mail that to you or they send that to you via, you know, the website, that's the stuff that they know about right now that hasn't paid. So it just hasn't arrived yet from, you know, the agencies or the Department of Education or the state that's paying it. So um, the amount due does reflect um, your bill charges minus any financial aid that is pending. So what you do need to do is um, parents or students, they do need to make sure that any aid that they've been offered um, through their award letter offer um, should be accepted, um, even if it's, you know, scholarships or grants and, you know, you just assume the college knows that you want it, you want to make sure you're accepting all of that because if it hasn't been accepted, it won't appear as pending financial aid. It, it may just be in a, in a you know, just a, a, a whirling status where it's just kind of static sitting there. So just make sure if you don't see it show up 
as pending that you're going back into your, your student's financial aid um, award offer to see if there's anything that has not been accepted yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had a student who um, lost financial aid because she never turned in, mm-hmm. I mean, she and her parents never turned in the acceptance of the award. So, yeah, I like, mean, they, most, like most everything else, they have deadlines for all of that, for, for accepting aid, and, you know, they do try to give you as much time as they can, but they'll they'll deny it and give it to somebody else if you haven't accepted it. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's correct. Yeah, yeah, she had to defer for a year, you know, which I don't think turned oh, out to be a geez. bad... Yeah, but I, I don't think it ended up being a bad thing, but I just, I like to mention it because it's like, don't just yep. assume they know you want the money, <laughs> you know, they need yeah. it. Yeah, and then some parents, you know, won't borrow if if they if they're not sure if they're going to borrow loans until they get the bill. Well, they haven't accepted, you know, the, the student loan or a portion of the student loan, so it doesn't show up, and then that you know kind of makes them nervous. So again, just you know, if you're waiting until you get the bill, make sure again you go back in and accept anything that hasn't been accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So why is federal work study not showing on the bill? So federal work study is considered financial aid, so it is something that the financial aid office um, does award students based on filling out the the FAFSA, the free application for student aid. Um, But federal work study is typically, for most schools, it's paid directly to the student. So um, if you're not sure what federal work study is, basically it's it's a part-time job that students can get working on campus in various uh, offices or, you know, cafeterias, places like that, and they earn a paycheck. So it's just like a a part-time job, basically. So they get paid every other week or once a month, however the, the college is, is doing the paychecks. Um, and it goes directly to the students. So even though it is considered um, to be a part of financial aid, it's financial aid that the student earns. So it's money that the student can then use however they need to for their living expenses. Um, so um, the student can use it to cover any, any kind of living costs. So it won't show up um, on the bill. It'll show up on the financial aid award offer. Um, as financial aid offered, you do have to accept it, just like all the other aid. Um, but again, once you find a job, it just acts like a part-time job where you get a paycheck and you can do what you need with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So why? So now on to loans. Why is the loan amount less than what was offered? Um, so with the federal student loan programs, there are you know different types of loan programs for families. The student can borrow a federal student loan in their name. The parent can borrow um, a federal loan in the parent's name, um, and those are all considered federal loans, and those are based, again, on filling out the, the FAFSA, the federal application um, for financial aid. But the, those loan programs do have origination fees associated with them, so they're basically just some fees that the Department of Education um, takes off the top of the loan before they deliver it to the school for the student's tuition bill. Um, so, the, like, for example, the origination fee for the student loan is about 1.6% um, this year, and then the parent loan, the fee is about 4.2%. So, if you're, you know, looking to borrow a, a certain amount of money, um, they will take a fee off the top, so you won't be getting the full amount that, that you're looking at. The, the school will get just a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, why doesn't a private loan show up on the bill? Yeah, so private loans are, again, are a little bit different than the federal loans, where the school, with the federal loan programs, the school will actually award those to the students. So the federal loans have certain loan limits that you can, you know, apply for. The school is based on the FAFSA. The school is the one that's basically in charge of of delivering those funds, of, you know, setting that up in the student's account, making sure everything is going through. Private loans are very different. They are credit-based loans that the students and parents apply for separately from the school. 
So the school doesn't have, they don't instigate the process. Um, they don't award those private loans up front because they are credit-based loans. Um, and they come from lenders, so they don't come from any government entity. They come from lenders around the nation. So because it's not part of the financial aid um, that the school offers, they won't be aware of the loan until everything has been approved through the lender. So the parent and the student will separately go find the lender that, that they would like to use for their loan. They'll apply for that. And once they're approved and they've provided all the necessary paperwork or documentation, that lender will then notify the school that, um, you know, student John Smith has a loan that they are going to borrow. And so then the school, again, will put that um, on the student's award to let them know that they've received that information. But oftentimes that's not, you know, in time for the college bill. So um, different lenders have different time frames. You know, summer is a busy time of year, so it can be a later process. So um, it just depends on how long all of that can take. The loan may not and probably more often than not won't show up on the bill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there a payment plan and, and what would be the fee for a payment plan? Yeah. So typically, again, most colleges and universities will have some sort of payment plan available. Um, and basically what that means is, you know, if parents decide that they can, they know they can pay, you know, $2,000 out of their pocket for the year, or they can pay $10,000 out of their pocket for the year, um, you know, in the hopes of borrowing less, um, they can do some sort of a payment plan with most schools where depending on the school, again, it's up to the college to determine what their payment plans will be. But you may be able to pay it over a nine-month um, period or a 10-month or a 12-month period. So some colleges will have you do payment plans just based on their school year, you know, from September to, to June or August to May. Um, so for a nine-month payment plan, some of them will let you cover it over 12 months. Um, and so that's easier for the parents because they're not having to come up with one big lump sum at the beginning of each quarter or semester to help pay for that term. They can break it out over months. Um, but they do, most colleges, again, will usually charge some sort of a service fee. Um, it's typically $100 or less, but again, it, it's up to the college to determine that um, on, on what their program is and who they're working with on, for what the fee would be. So if you do think that, that a payment plan would be a good thing for, you know, if a parent thinks that's a good thing for them to do, they can contact, um, again, the, the student financial services offices at that campus or the, the student accounts office, and they can get more information about the, that specific payment plan and the fees that are associated with it. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Listen, Chrissy, this has been so helpful. So thank you so much for coming on today. You are so welcome. It's always fun to talk about uh, tuition and fees and bills and all types of financial aid. So thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. All right. So all right. Have a great now, day. You too. All right. So now thanks. we'll be taking a short break. But when I return, I'll be talking with Tova Tolman about how to determine whether an early deadline for college is right for you. So please stick around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we'll now be talking to Tova Tolman about early deadlines. Welcome, Tova. That's me. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Tova. All right. So let's talk about, I mean, the, the idea behind this segment is just should students consider applying early to programs? But there's so many different kinds of early programs um, I was, you know, with early deadlines, I was hoping you could give kind of a brief overview of them. Hmm. We only have 15 minutes. How brief here? Okay. Yeah, I know. So, Just like quick one-line <laughs> explanations. Yeah. A one-line explanation. Early implies that there's some sort of regular. Um, so let's work backwards from that. Uh, if we were to look at the regular timeline that's often looked at as January, January 1, January 15, sometime in the spring, early usually is implying a deadline by maybe November 1, November 15, here in Georgia, it's usually October 15, by which you have everything in and done and submitted by, and then the school in exchange commits to getting you a decision earlier in the timeline. So instead of having to wait until, let's say, February, March, April to hear your decision, you'll often hear your decision already uh, by end of December or so, sometimes as late as early January. I'd say in my one-sentence summary, that's it for what it means. You have two main types of decision plans with the name early in the title. You have early decision and early action. Early action is the kind where you apply early, like we said, and you hear early, but you've made no commitment to the school. You're basically only saying, hey, listen, I think I like you. You're on my list. You're on my radar. I've got my stuff in order together, so I'm going to go ahead and apply, but I don't know yet where I want to go. And that's great for a student who wants to apply to many schools. That's, again, called early action. Now, early decision is similar in the sense that you could receive one of the same three outcomes. You could be admitted, 
You could be deferred to the regular decision pool or you could be denied. Or if you go the early decision route, again, the word decision, not action, you're now making a commitment to the school. It is a binding contract. By applying to a school through their early decision plan, you are telling that school, I am in love. You are the school I want to be at. I don't need to shop around. I don't need to compare financial aid packages. I don't need to see who else maybe would have admitted me. I'm committing, and if admitted, I will attend. So early decision is the binding kind. Early action is the open kind, but they are both early in the process. Mm -hmm. So let's start with, I mean, hopefully people realize why you don't always want to apply early decision, although I think we, we... Maybe we should get into that, though. Maybe. Some details. Yeah. Like, so So let's talk about, like, when would you want to do early decision? When would you not want to do early decision? One of our other colleagues, I'm sure she's been a guest of the show or not. I don't want to compl- uh, pretend like this is my analogy. Um, Lauren Randall once referred to it as, it's kind of like proposing marriage. If you're not ready to commit and propose, <laughs> you certainly can't propose to more than two people at the same time, you should apply early decision if that applies to you. You have fallen in love with a school, and you know already, it, what is today, August 1, or we're recording this today, August 1, I don't know when it's going to air, or, or when someone might listen to this, maybe it's later on in the process, but regardless of where you are, you know this is the school I want to be at. And then, great, wonderful. If you need not compare or consider or think about it, fantastic. That is who it is for. What it is not for is a student who is just trying to get a competitive edge and says this whole idea of, well, I'm going to apply ED somewhere. I just don't know yet where. (laughs) That's going about it, I'd say, the wrong way. We can unpack that further if you'd like, but I'd say those are the basics. It's for the one who knows. It's not for the one who's just trying to sort of game a system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, we can acknowledge that early decision doesn't give that advantage. But remember, you have to go there. Um, I'm actually working with a student, <laughs> like, I'm working with a student who, she visited a school, and I won't say which one, because I don't want to give any identifying characteristics. She thought she would love it, and she, she just didn't really love it. And, um, you know, she got some disappointing grades. So the school that she did love is seeming less likely right now. And so she's Mm. like, well, maybe I should apply to this other school early decision. Um, Do you think my odds are higher? And I'm like, yes. But uh, the worst, worse than you not getting in any place early decision is you getting into a school that you don't want to go to. And she thought, (laughs) seems obvious, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. But she was like, oh, I guess that's true. I'm like, yes, think, imagine yourself getting an admit letter and being disappointed about it. And she like really hadn't sort of pictured that moment. And I'm like, truly, that is worse than you being denied or deferred. I know that it doesn't seem like it right now. You're like, I just need to get in somewhere. I said, but I promise you will get in to more than one somewhere. Yeah. Let's also not overinflate the edge it does give. Now, it's going to help a little because you are taking the guesswork out for the colleges. They don't have to sit and wonder whether or not you're going to accept that offer. But it's not going to get a student in who isn't otherwise qualified, who isn't really a serious contender anyway. So that's the other thing. I think sometimes families might overinflate its influence and how much of an impact it's actually going to have. It's like a thumb on the scale. It's a little extra something. It's not going to totally change the landscape of a decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And I do think it's good to emphasize 
the financial aid aspect. I mean, I really liked it that you, you, you know, you brought up that you need to compare, um, you need, you know, if you're someone who needs to be able to compare aid packages and see if one school might give you more than another, this really isn't going to be for you. Now, I, I do think it's important to clarify it can be for someone who is going to need financial aid. You don't need yes. to feel like you, you're limited, especially if it's a, a school that guarantees to meet 100% of your need. What it behooves you to do is, is put your best faith effort, do your diligence of research, of getting a picture from their net price calculator with speaking to the financial aid office to make sure that if admitted, the offer that they're going to be giving is going to match what your family feels like your actual need is. And if you're not sure, and or if you're feeling like it's quite a bit ways away from what you're going to need, then it would absolutely be irresponsible to apply from a binding perspective and not being able to compare multiple packages or be in a position where you might be able to negotiate or ask for a little bit more without having already made that commitment to the school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, I know that one of the questions I get, uh, unfortunately, kind of regularly, because I'm frankly pretty disappointed when I get this question is, you know, sometimes people will say, well, how do they, you know, how can they enforce it? Like, can't I just apply early decision and then not go? Um, so I have a pretty good story mm-hmm. about that. I don't know if you have one or should I launch into mine? Well, now I want to hear yours. What happened? Okay. Okay, so I was working at University of Chicago. We were um, early action school, so completely non-binding mm-hmm. um, at that stage. They now have early decision, but this was only this was early action. And um, so, you know, I had a student met him at a school visit, thought he was great. Um, he applied, and he actually ended up getting a pretty significant scholarship. Um, you know, he was he was really like that sort of that spectacular of a student. I thought everything was great, like well, wonderful, like you know. And then the student deposited. So then my the dean of admission calls me into his office and says, um, uh, "We're having to withdraw admission from your student." And I said, well, "Why is that?" And he said, "Well, I just got a call." from the Dean of Admission at Northwestern. And um, he had applied early decision there. And and, uh, and then he withdrew saying that he was gonna attend us. So, um, (laughs) you know, this is information (laughs) that we can find out about, right? And he had made a commitment. So as a result of that, we withdrew his admission, obviously withdrew his scholarship, and we told him he could apply again for the subsequent year. He would probably get in because, you know, we're not going to hold, honestly, his parents were at fault too. And so we felt like, you know, lesson learned, right? But he was not going to get that scholarship. He lost the scholarship and he was forced to take a gap year. So, you know, my hope, because I did like this kid, is that this really was kind of a misguided I, I don't know. I don't know why he thought this was okay. It's hard for me to speculate. I mean, his parents came down and saw me. They showed up at like a visit day and I just yeah. said, look, there's nothing we can do. I mean, this is our policy. You violated a really important policy and uh, the scholarship is gone, but he can, he will probably get in next year. Yeah. 
So this is uh, why I like the analogy of proposing marriage. You got to take it pretty darn seriously. And if you don't mean it, it's not the kind of thing you want to enter into. And nowadays, actually, I believe the student, uh, there are three different lines on the contract that have to be signed. The student signs, the parent signs, and the guidance counselor signs. So everyone is acknowledging this commitment that's being made and everyone takes it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. All right. And let's move on then to ED2. I think sometimes people are really mm. concerned that, you know, it's it's like, well, then they're going to know that, you know, it's the second choice or whatever. And, and um, so what are your thoughts about that? That's a really fair thought, right? Well, if you really liked this so much, why didn't you apply ED1, right? Well, maybe we should take it just a quick step back. What exactly is ED1, ED2? What are we talking about here? Um, this is, I feel like, more and more popular in the last 10, 15 years. It's starting to come up more frequently than um, a while ago. Some schools are acknowledging, hey, listen, not everyone has done their research already in April of their junior year. Come August, September, not everyone has a clear first choice. Maybe they're only diving into their tours and their research in the fall. And by November 1, they weren't ready to commit. But now they've gone, they've worked on applications to other schools. They're realizing, hey, now that I've had more time to think about this, I know where I want to be, and they just realize it a little later. And that is another option. So, it's, again, it's early decision, like the same things we're talking about, the same kind of commitment. You're, again, getting that sort of competitive edge because you're telling the school, if admitted, I will attend, but the deadline is a little later. I feel like they need a more creative name than ED or early decision, too. I feel like they need to call it, like, committed regular or, like, I really need it this time regular or some sort of other name to imply that it's it's a regular decision deadline but with a commitment. And, okay, Mm -hmm. about the fact that you are putting out there, well, how many students maybe applied somewhere, ED1, didn't get in to that first choice school, and now are like, okay, well, here's my second choice. I'm going to, I'm going to apply there, ED2. And I'd say, I wouldn't really worry about it. The school is clearly open to that if they offer this early decision to plan. Sometimes they feel really good about being your second choice because, hey, I'm glad we're in the running and you're clearly a great kid and we'd be happy to have you and thrilled to have you. And uh, you don't necessarily even need to know. They're certainly not going to know where you applied early decision one to if you even did. And I'd venture that a fair number of the students who take advantage of it are really coming at it less from the way you're describing where it's, they didn't get in wa- into ED1, so now they're applying ED2. I'd actually, I'd assert that probably a good portion are coming at it from, hey, I just got at my research a little later in the season, and it took me a little longer to come to the determination that this is my first choice school. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you are still making that commitment and telling the school, if admitted, I will attend, and nothing else really matters then. Mm-hmm. All right. So what about, and by the, yeah, I completely agree with you. I don't think there's any problem with ED2. Um, you know, colleges know there's other good colleges out there. So even if you did come to them second, it's, it's, that's not a problem. Um, so let's move on though. We have about three minutes left. Um, what is early action? I mean, well, we've defined early action, but let's talk about kind of upsides, downsides, who early action might be for. Yeah, let's say if you're listening to this podcast in a week or so, we upload it, two weeks or so that we upload it, 
early action is for everyone, is for you. If you're listening to this podcast on December 1 and you're your senior year, it's probably not for you. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is ideal for all students who are moving along, getting their, their pieces together, and would like to just get everything done by early November and out the door. It is not for a student who has been procrastinating. It is not for a student who has maybe been on a significant upward trend grade-wise. And why? Um, what do I mean by that? If you're submitting your application to schools by November 1 or, or October 15 of your senior year, you don't have a whole lot of grades from senior year to show yet. They're probably making the decision primarily on your first three years of high school, ninth, 10th, and 11th. And if each year you gotten significantly stronger, and maybe 11th grade was your best year yet, but it was perhaps dramatically different than 9th and 10th, the colleges might want to see that strong upward trend continuing, and they want to see evidence that senior year, you're continuing that upward trend and doing just as well as you did junior year. It wasn't a fluke. And in those circumstances, another semester of grades might be helpful, and then applying in the regular decision timeline will sort of assure that your first semester grades will be included and considered in the evaluation process. Other than that, I'd say you can get your act together to put together thoughtful applications that you weren't rushing through by that November 1 deadline. I think it's a great thing. You get your decision a little earlier. You feel a little bit more control of the process. You get to enjoy more senior year. Even if you end up adding a few schools later on in the regular process, it's wonderful to at least have a few uh, of, of accepts, a few admits, you know, if you can get your uh, a no-problem safety school out the door um, or two by early action deadline. You will feel very thankful come December, January, when you're stressed about the other applications that you know at least you have that one off of admission um, at a school you really like uh, in the bag already while you wait to hear from everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think the benefits of rolling are going to be pretty similar. Let's talk about rolling now. Sure. So that's a whole other bag, but the reality is if we're talking about the 4,000 schools out there, I'd say the majority of schools out there probably practice some form of rolling decision. So it's interesting that, you know, we on our show, we're totally guilty of this. The media in general, we always all focus on the highly selective schools. The reality is most schools out there do not operate under this whole November 1, January 1, May 1 world. They are rolling throughout the whole season. You can apply often as early as September, October, and they might get you your decision two or three weeks later. And they're not waiting for all of the applications to come in for them to review before releasing any decisions. As applications come in and become complete, they review and get you a decision. The earlier you apply in that process, the better, because as time goes on, not only do spots become more competitive, scholarship dollars are handed out. At the school I worked at that was rolling at a big state public, by Thanksgiving, we had given out all of our money. So if you were a strong student, you might still get in, and you likely would <laughs> throughout the whole spring. You, though, would not get a scholarship that you would have gotten had you applied in October. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I always recommend that students take advantage of rolling. So. so I think with that, we're set for today. Thank you so much, Tova. My pleasure, Sally, anytime. All right, so we're going to be taking a short break, um, but when we get back, I'll be welcoming Lisa Albro to talk about when a school you think is a safety might not actually be a safety. Um, so thank you so much, and stay on the line. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, And hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Sally. (laughs) All right. So we are here today to talk about when is a safety school not a safety. So I think to start out with just, I mean, the people who listen to this program have varying levels of knowledge base. So when people talk about a safety school, what are they referring to? Mm -hmm. That's a great question to start with. And I think it's important to define that, but it's also important to know that a safety for one student may not be safe for another. So, you know, they don't all fall in the same category for every student. Uh, in order to determine what can be a safety for you or for your child, if you're a parent listening today, uh, you'll want to look at the uh, the statistics, the, the admit numbers. Uh, you know, what are the average GPAs or middle 50% SATs and ACTs, and does your child fall anywhere within that realm? And I should backtrack if it's anywhere within that realm, that middle 50%, if it's on the low end of that middle 50%, that does not make it a safety, right? Uh, It would really have to be kind of on that high end or over, over the top, higher than the middle 50% numbers, higher than the average admitted GPA is really what's going to say it's safe Mm -hmm. for you. Um, 
also, I think, you know, we have to remind ourselves that what was safe when we were applying to colleges, however many years ago that might have been, for for me it was over 30 years ago, uh, schools that were then safe are not necessarily safe now universally, right? Uh, A lot of schools have amped up their profiles and become more selective over the last several years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, when I came from University of Chicago to Archer School for Girls, a high school in Los Angeles, one of my students was really interested in the University of Chicago and her father had gone to Harvard. And uh, so I was telling her it was a big reach for her, which it was. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she told mm-hmm. her dad and her dad said, Chicago, but that's a safety. <laughs> okay, first of all, maybe for you it was, but not for everyone. And second of all, that was 30 years ago. Exactly. Right. Definitely not a safety. You know, um, other right. examples of that, like USC in California, they used to admit over 80%, you know, mm-hmm. and now it's they're harder to get into than UCLA, UC Berkeley, I think. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and so and I want to bring up another thing. Things and, and oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Just the other. In addition to kind of looking at the averages and things like that, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I wanted to emphasize that you do also have to look at the admit rate because sometimes it, if a school, if your student has the numbers but a student, a school admits twenty percent or less, then just basically that school probably isn't a safety for anybody. Right, right. You're right. And I did start to say and didn't finish that thought. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Good. All right. So I think it's great that we've kind of defined what a safety is and really clearly every student needs these. Um, But what are some other things that might make a school a safety? Mm -hmm. Might make it a safety or make it not a safety, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Might make it not a safety. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Right. So in some cases, it might not be as difficult to get into the school itself, just the school as a whole, if you're applying to or applying undecided or you're thinking you may want to major in something that's not uh, a specialty major or a, a, a particularly difficult area of study to get into. But if you're looking at, let's say, nursing, I think this is a great example to use because it is tough to get into nursing programs. And it may be easier to get into the school that offers the nursing program just, you know, as an undecided student or, oh, I think I may want to study English or what have you. But if you're applying to the nursing program at that same school where if you're looking at the statistics and you're saying, oh, wow, I'm, I'm over the numbers and, and their admit rate is very high overall, I should be able to get in here. But if you're applying to nursing, you need to look at those statistics for the nursing program and you need to look at their averages and their data because it's going to be different. And and usually the GPAs will be higher and the testing scores will be higher for students applying to programs like that, like nursing, or in many cases, business programs, right? Uh, sometimes different areas of engineering, uh, computer science at some schools is going to be tougher, pharmacy. Those are a few that come to mind as very different kinds of programs to apply to. So even if they are offered at a school that looks safe for you or for your child, you need to look at the the deeper details about applications to those specific programs if you're looking to apply to them. Mm -hmm. And it can happen with really surprising schools. I mean, computer science, University of Washington, 
Um, I think mm-hmm. a lot of students don't realize how much more competitive the computer science program is. And even um, San Jose State, like I think, right. you know, San Jose State as a, as a whole is not, I mean, it's, it's, you know, selective certainly, but not impossible to get into. But the computer mm-hmm. science program is a whole nother animal. So really mm-hmm. do your due diligence on any of these programs. I mean, I just highlighted computer science, but you know, there's also the Bachelor of Science MD combined programs. Those can be much more competitive. Mm-hmm. Have you had experience with those? Yes, absolutely. And that, that's a great example, too. Uh, so students looking for those, you know, what do we call them sometimes, direct admit programs or seven or eight year uh, BSMD programs, uh, they might be offered again at schools where if you're just applying to the school, straight out, it may be safe, but those programs are incredibly difficult to get into, incredibly selective, and sometimes as selective, if not more so, than the Ivy Leagues can be, mm-hmm. right, in, in yeah. many cases. And so there are lots of layers to those applications, too, so it's not, applicants are not looked at the same way in the process. Initially, if they're just applying, you know, they're being considered for the, the four-year school, they might be admitted to the school itself, but not to the BSMD program. That mm-hmm. can sometimes happen as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So what are some other reasons that a safety might not be a safety? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I always tell my students when they're looking at their schools and we're talking about their lists and we're identifying schools that are safe for them and legitimately safe for them, uh, the, the, the number one thing I always tell them is show those schools the love. You know, don't forsake those schools in, uh, you know, not giving them attention. Uh, don't put all your eggs in the basket of your reach schools and your maybe some of your target schools, but pay attention to your safety schools in the way that you can show them some interest. Um, it's, you know, demonstrated interest. Uh, put your name on their mailing list if you're not already. If you can visit, if it's not too far away, visit. Uh, maintain contact in, in an appropriate way. You're not going to call them or, or email them all the time, but if they send you an email, let's say, uh, open the email. If there's a link in that email, open that link, spend some time looking at that site because we're hearing more and more that schools are trying to track whether students are paying attention to them. And in particular, if the school is a safety for a student, that school may think, hmm, you know, how do we know whether the student just threw us on their list because they know they can get in here or whether they're legitimately interested in us? And so uh, sometimes a school that is safe by the numbers you know, uh, if the student, the applicant hasn't shown any love, any attention to that school, uh, at, at some schools, when they're sitting there and they're talking about their decisions, they might actually bring up a student who's a high achiever uh, for them in committee and say, you know, we haven't seen any evidence of this student. We haven't seen him or her on our radar screen until becoming an applicant. How, you know, reasonable is it to assume that this person will actually materialize for us as an enrolled student if we offer him or her admission? And sometimes they will choose not to admit a student, even if they're much stronger than their profile, because they don't Mm want to offer admission to someone who's not likely to come. They've got to worry about their numbers, their yield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen it happen where, you know, maybe a student with a 1500 on the SAT uh, didn't get into a school when the student with the 1370 got in. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that's yep. pretty notably one of those situations. Absolutely. You know, just like we, we both were on the high school side for a while after leaving college admissions, and, and in that capacity, I'm, I'm pretty sure you did what I did as well, uh, which was pick up the phone and call the admissions uh, representative that, for our school to kind of dissect the decisions that were made, in particular if a student was denied or, or deferred or waitlisted. Sometimes I would call, I would always call, and find out what went down, why was this? So, and, and, you know, how can I prevent this from happening in coming years or what advice can I give my future applicants uh, to, to know about this? And I've had a few conversations with a few schools who have said to me, well, you know, he looks great for us by the numbers, you know, his, his scores and grades were right in line. He looks like a strong candidate, except he never visited and he only lives three hours away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think that three yeah. hours is really notable, too. I mean, there are some schools that are going to play this game, even if you're far away. But I would say, like back when I was at University of Chicago, and this was years ago, so I want to emphasize that the policy may be different now. Uh, they probably look at demonstrated, they might look at it even more, or they might look at it less, given their level of selectivity. But back in the day, mm-hmm. we really didn't look at demonstrated interest. But if someone was from like the suburbs, like two hours away mm-hmm. or an hour and a half away, and they didn't visit, we were like, really? Like, mm-hmm. you know, how hard is it? You can even take the train here. Like, like the commuter rail will get you here. So, so we really <laughs> definitely expected someone who was local to visit, even though we didn't expect it from people farther away. And, uh, right. and, and I, you know, I've heard similar things from other pretty selective schools. You know, that being said, though, I want to emphasize, like, Stanford could care less if you visit, right? So this is truly... Right about the safeties at maybe the mid-range schools more than anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. We know that there are schools in certain, certain echelons, I guess you could say, that are always going to get their interested students. They, they know they're a hot commodity. They don't need to worry about tracking interest because they know everybody's interested in them. So that would be the IVs. And in many cases, large public institutions are not tracking interest because they're, they're looking at students in their states and, and surrounding, you know, surrounding areas across the country. They, they are generally going to make their numbers, but it's those small and medium-sized schools, especially if they're a little bit off the beaten track uh, or if there are safeties for a particular applicant. They really need to know that a student is likely to attend if, if accepted, and uh, especially if they're getting toward the end of their decision-making process, when it's almost time to start releasing decisions to the to the the majority of the applicants, uh, they might only have a few spots left at, at that point. And if they're looking at a, a super student who hasn't shown them any interest versus a, a pretty good student who has, they're more likely at that point to say, "Let's go with the pretty good student who has," because we've got to we've got to look at our numbers. We've got to make sure we're in, admitting enough people that we're likely to enroll the number we need to enroll. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the, um, the last reason that I like to bring up is every once in a while, you also see schools that have major jumps in selectivity just very suddenly. So historically, yeah. like they've, you know, maybe they've been going up in selectivity by 3%, 4%. Suddenly it's higher. So what, what is uh, your experience with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen that play out, uh, you know, a few years ago, 
few years, more than a few years ago, probably closer to 10 years ago, I think, or maybe 11. Uh, I remember when Northeastern was just a you know, good, solid uh, school where, you know, students with a, with a pretty good average and, a, and pretty decent SAT scores had no problem getting into Northeastern. And I had lots of applicants there from, from the school where I worked. And uh, in one year's time, that changed so drastically and almost nobody got in who typically the year before would have gotten in without a problem. Uh, they just became very, very selective very, very quickly. Um, we saw a big jump, I remember, many years ago, probably going on maybe more, maybe close to 20 years ago almost, um, when NYU went through something like that, where they uh, saw an explosion in application numbers. I think they went from something like 18,000 in one year to over 30,000 in one year. And by virtue of having many more applicants to choose from, they became very, very selective very quickly. Uh, So, yes, you see that happen sometimes, and it's hard to predict which schools are going to go that direction from one year to the next, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's why you need at least two safeties because that way yeah. you're probably not going to be, uh, you're not going to be stuck. All right. So I think that does it. Thanks so much, Lisa. Yeah, you bet. Okay. All right. Before I end the show, I do want to tell you all about a great school called Marlboro. Um, And I wanted to highlight it because it's been in the news for a planned merger with the University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The two institutions seem about as opposite as can be. Bridgeport is very urban with a pre-professional focus in its coursework. And Marlboro is tiny, rural, and focused on pure liberal arts. Um, I think that the merger is going to provide some pretty great opportunities um, for both institutions' students. But I do want to highlight just a little bit more about Marlboro. It's really full of independent thinkers. The students have to chart their own educational journeys. And um, the college's community is self-governing with great classes like how poems get made and the plans of the plants of Vermont. Um, they also provide the similar social and academic opportunities as those find it, found at other small liberal arts colleges, though. And it is one of the 45 colleges that change lives. So if you're interested in an opportunity to kind of have both an urban education and a very rural one, classic small liberal arts college, and then also maybe some opportunities to be at a more urban, kind of more applied-focused um, institution, you might want to check this out. So, all right. Now I want to tell you about our show next week. We have a great segment by Elise Krantz, our common application expert, on changes coming to the common application. Um, She already did a segment on July 25th on breaking news in the world of admission, so I'd suggest checking both of those out. Um, And there's also going to be a popular listener questions segment Um, with Ian and his guest, college coach finance consultant Shannon Vasconcelos, answering those on our August 1st show. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. And if you like our show, please do be sure to rate us on iTunes. It helps more people uh, find us, and it will take only a moment of your time. And last, don't forget, we're here every every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. 
Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.